Today we're focusing on just a few glimpses of what's going on with Satan in the Middle Ages and the early modern period. Now, the Middle Ages, what we usually mean by that, is anywhere from about 800 to 1500. And different scholars might give you different dates on what they mean by the Middle Ages, but that's roughly it. So scholars would often speak of the period from about 300 to 800 as late antiquity. You may have heard that expression. But even those dates could be different depending on what scholar you're talking to, right? It's rough. And then the Middle Ages from about 800 to 1500. Early modern period, what scholars usually mean is the period from about 1400, so there's a little bit of overlap, you could almost say, to 1700. Rough dates again, just to give you an idea of what we mean by late antiquity, middle ages, early modern. And so today we're looking at Satan in the Middle Ages and the early modern period, so we're, we're going to be scanning mainly the period from about 1000 to 1600. And we're just going to get some glimpses of a few things that are going on. We won't be able to cover the whole history, obviously. And I'll come back to that whole issue of internal uses of Satan and external uses of Satan at the end, when we get to the early modern period in particular. Thankfully, Russell will also fill in some other information as you're going along that I won't be covering everything Russell does, but he'll fill in some of the gaps for you on the Middle Ages and, and especially the depiction of Satan and that sort of thing. So what I hope you'll get out of this, that Satan is very active in, in different ways throughout the medieval and early modern period, active culturally speaking. Although there's some commonalities in that activity that's perceived by Christians, there's diversity in the details of how Satan is viewed and how his demons are viewed. There's no one view of Satan that dominates, although there's certain aspects that are consistent. Obviously still evil, obviously still trying to pull down humanity. So that's a common denominator, but there's a variety of attitudes towards Satan that are different from one piece of evidence to the next. Where you'll sometimes have Satan, for example, or demons, as very dangerous, <clears throat> to the point of death, dangerous. Dangerous like they'll kill you, dangerous. On the one hand, and then you sometimes have demons and Satan portrayed as the jokester, the trickster, the seemingly harmless, somewhat evil, but seemingly harmless sort of figures. And so that's just one example of that diversity that exists and continues to exist into the modern period too in, in the way we understand Satan. Those two sides of Satan uh, existed even back in antiquity to some degree in some of the evidence we have, but not quite as prominently. They become more clear in the Middle Ages and then they become sort of solidified in, in our next discussion when we talk about the traditional Satan of Milton's Paradise Lost versus the 18th century Faust story that has a Satan that's more the jokester. The, the sure he's not so great, but not very dangerous Satan. This, this jokester, trickster aspect of Satan that already existed quite a long way back but develops in the Middle Ages and, and then wins the day in some ways in the modern period that has robbed Satan of his power, let's put it that way. Let's talk first of all about Satan and his demons in medieval cultural life. So I want to talk about first of all how demons and Satan and the devil are portrayed in these medieval stories. 
uh, about interactions between humans and these evil forces. Then I want to talk about some medieval heresies. Heresies in the eye of the beholder, but put it in quotation marks. The medieval forms of Christianity that have a central role for Satan that's somewhat different than the traditional forms of Christianity in the Middle Ages. I want to look at the Cathars, which have a similar worldview to the Gnostics we looked at and to the Manichees we mentioned in connection with Augustine. And then thirdly, I want to look at uh, Satan in the witch accusations. And you had a whole reading on that that we can uh, delve into quite extensively to, to get a glimpse into what Satan's sort of functions are within medieval worldview, how he relates to humanity, and that that comes very clear in the, in the witchcraft uh, accusations. So those are the three things under this first point that I want to deal with that will shed light on Satan and his demons in medieval cultural life generally. Let's first talk about a couple of the stories from your readings that you're going to extensively analyze for yourself in your assignment. But for now, just to highlight a couple of them, just as examples of how demons are viewed and how they function in the worldview, in the mindset of people in the Middle Ages. These are German stories about demons and what they do in relation to humanity. This is a Dominican friar who has written them down. So he's a, a sort of holy man type figure who has written these down. He's collected various stories he's heard about demons. It's in the 1200s CE, so it gives you a sense of the time period. This first one here I want to draw your attention to is 216. Each of them is a story, isn't it, about a particular type of person, their encounter with demons, and then an outcome from that encounter. And in the process, you get a few things out of the story, one of which is the nature of what Satan or demons is like for a medieval thinker, for a person in the Middle Ages. We also get out of it sort of a lesson out of each and every story, don't you? There's always a moral to the way these stories are told. This first one is about a pleasure-loving woman. There was a pleasure-loving woman from the Diocese of Basel in, in Germany who neither by price nor prayer could get enough of what she wanted. She hastened to an old widow who was an enchantress or sorceress, believing that through incantations to demons, she would more easily get what she desired. They get together and make a wicked concoction, is how the story goes. She gets her godmother to help her out. And this is all to try and get more of what she wanted, wants, right? I think it's implying sexual things, but it never quite says it, does it? And finally, they manage to evoke Satan here, or a demon. How is Satan or the demon portrayed in this particular story? black man. This is very common in some of the portrayals, but not all, of the portrayals of demons or Satan in the Middle Ages. Not all. So as an Ethiopian. Remember that in the Middle Ages too, the shape-shifting thing that you learned about in Russell is quite common. So the idea is Satan can appear in various forms and that this is just one of his forms. So the end of the story, after the woman tries to get what she wants um, and finally evokes Satan, Let's go back here. The woman got out all the things she had gathered together that she considered necessary to complete the work of the concoction to be able to get what she wants. After she had spent some time working away, the door to the house suddenly blew open. The woman quickly got up and carefully shut it. After a time, the door opened again. 
Again, the woman quickly closed it and went back to completing her wicked business. The door opened a third time, and in walked a black man, tall and thin. He grabbed the woman, working the magic by the head, twisted it around to her back, and wretchedly killed her. In the meantime, her godmother, who was sitting near her, fainted terror-stricken. The black man, who was the devil, ignored her. After an hour, the godmother came to her senses. She went to her husband, who lay sleeping in his room, etc. So, the moral of the lesson, <laughs> don't deal with the black arts, because Satan might even kill you. There doesn't have to be a logical sort of understanding, you'll see, in the Middle Ages, as to what Satan does. To, to use logic for a moment here that we shouldn't use, why would Satan kill someone who's engaged in the black arts? You'd think he'd be patting her on the back. Keep up the bad, bad stuff, it doesn't have, but there's not that logic there, is there? Remember, it's being told by a Dominican, churchly sort of guy. Uh, the moral of the story is, getting involved in sort of wicked practices, you may end up being killed. Let's look at this next one here, the Noble Knight, also from Germany. This guy, the Noble Knight, supposedly lived in Utrecht, and he's rich and prosperous. He had a bold spirit, and he accumulated his riches day after day. Demons, quite often, appeared to him. So this guy is not really at fault in trying to get something. He's just a wealthy, successful guy, and demons seem to interfere in his life a lot. He called them by their names, and they usually answered his questions. One day, he left the castle where he lived. He said goodbye to his wife with loving words. When his wife got into bed that night, it seemed to her that her husband came to her and had relations with her in due manner. Someone comes in and has sex with his wife. She thought it was her husband. Turns out it's one of the demons. Is how the story goes here. What happens? She gives birth to monsters. Terrified and upset almost to death, the woman learned that she had given birth to three monsters at once. One monster had teeth like a hog's, the second had a startlingly long beard, the third had one eye in its face, so reported someone who saw them. But the mother after the birth of these children died. Once again, demons are active in your life. They can make things happen, they can kill you, they can impregnate your wife, etc. This is really down-to-earth ideas of how Satan interacts with human beings in the Middle Ages, isn't it? Let's move ahead to uh, another one from uh, one of these other stories here in another section. This is a trickster sort of portrayal, so I just wanted to at least draw your attention to this one. In this case, there's not as much of the sort of scariness of the is this devil coming and breaking your neck or impregnating your wife and her turning out to have three monsters. This one, it's the certain troubling spirits, and they're sometimes identified as evil in some way, are haunting, basically, this particular family. Around Lent, near the village of Bedford, nearly every day, this is in the 1300s, this one comes from, every day at sunset, a spirit roamed invisibly about the village. You don't know the name of the village. It visited the house of a widow and told her that it was her daughter, blaming her that because of the widow's carelessness, she had been stillborn and then buried by her under the tree in the garden. Then it added that this woman, who it claimed was its mother, would be damned for her deed. But the mother, though she was just an uneducated countrywoman, replied that this would not happen since she had confessed the sin and performed a suitable penance, making up for your sin, according to the discretion and decision of the priest. The spirit objected 
that she was lying and repeated that she would be damned for her sin. The two of them often wrangled over this issue. It's like you regularly are arguing with a demon. And then it ends up being sort of like a tame family pet, doesn't it? The family grew so familiar with the spirit from their frequent conversations that they had no fear of it at all. And they asked whether it wished to repeat the Lord's Prayer, the Hail Mary, the Creed, and John's Gospel in the beginning after them. It said all these clearly and without fault. But when they told it to say Jesus of Nazareth in English, it took them a while so they could teach Jesus of Nazareth. But even the, the demon can even say that word. So this is sort of the mischievous, somewhat harmless demon image that you have alongside the dangerous break your neck and kill you demon that it exists in the mindset of people in the Middle Ages. That's what we're after, the mindset of people back then. You know, we're not asking whether or not any of these exists or whether these stories are true. What we're asking is, what do these tell us about the medieval worldview, about how they looked at the world and how they saw Satan and demons and devil interacting in their everyday lives? Let's go on to the second point here I have that further illustrates how Satan is functioning in the Middle Ages. In this case, it's somewhat different than what we've just been looking at. And I want to look at a particular popular movement that was popular in the late 1100s and into the 1200s CE and, and sort of lasted a bit into the 1300s. And that is Catharism. The Cathars were a type of Christian in France particularly, most predominantly in France. Uh, Leroy Ladurie has written a whole book on this called Montaigneau, a certain town in France that is a very lively read as a social historian. It's a good example of micro-history where a historian actually goes into the nitty-gritty details of people's lives from sources in the Middle Ages in this case, and he, he does a whole book on the Cathars and analyzes the court cases because the Inquisition is on in the 1200s. It's sort of the height of the Inquisition. Namely, the time when the church organizes itself to actually have courts that will officially hear complaints about people having heretical opinions and then makes judgments, uh, sometimes for execution, sometimes for other sort of penance. The Inquisition is quite active in this time period of history. So you may have heard of that Inquisition from other courses you've taken. And that's the time period we're in. But what we want to get into is where Satan fits within the worldview of the Cathars, which is somewhat different not from everything we've studied, but somewhat different than the standard view in the Middle Ages. Obviously, the Inquisitions would suggest that the Cathars and other heresies were actually the work of Satan. So that there's that internal use of satanic rhetoric that we'll come back to uh, later today, where uh, you, know, you would you demonize the heresies. But we're not focused on that right now. What we're focused on is what the Cathars worldview was and how Satan, or a figure like Satan, played a role in their worldview. The reason I wanted to highlight it is because you've encountered a similar view before. One of the main characteristics of Gnosticism, remember, is that the God of the Hebrew Bible who created this world we live in is not such a great guy. This whole physical realm we live in, the whole material realm we live in, including all created things we see, including our created bodies, are a huge abortion, a huge mistake, right? And that the God of the Hebrew Bible, in the view of Gnostics, they're, they're unusual. Most Christians did not reject 
the Judean God of the Hebrew Bible that the Gnostics do in this way, right? That the God of the Hebrew Bible is the Demiurge, the creator God who has actually created this bad material realm. So remember, within Gnosticism, the creator God actually plays the role of Satan, doesn't he? And opposed to Satan, opposed to the creator God, is the true father in the spiritual realm. Remember the spiritual realm on the one hand, the dualism. Spiritual realm, material realm. That's the dualism. Father God, the true God, spiritual God, material creator God. We noticed when we touched on Augustine briefly that uh, he formulated his notions of evil in part in reaction to things he viewed as heresies. One of the things he used to belong to and then later rejected was he belonged to a group called the Manichees. The Manichees shared in common not everything that the Gnostics had, but shared in common that dualism. The material realm is bad, created by a bad being, by a bad force. There's a perfect spiritual realm where, we tr where our souls within us, our sparks within us, truly belong. So they, the Manichees share in common that general idea with the Gnostics. And then they have a place for Christ, obviously being sent from the perfect spiritual realm, right? To save the trapped sparks of the perfect spiritual realm that are trapped within human bodies in the bad material realm. That's the common denominator of all these movements that, that I've just outlined here. The Gnostics have it, the Manichees have that, and then by the Cathars. So let's talk about the Cathars now, a tiny bit. We can't go into great detail. Another name for the Cathars is Albigensians, just in case you've come across that before. They became very prominent in parts of France and parts of uh, northern Italy in the late 1100s and especially by the 1200s to the point where when they first appeared on the radar of the Inquisition, in other words, the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church's official court to try and get rid of all kinds of heresies, when they first came on the radar of that official institution, they're widespread. It's like the dominant form of Christianity in certain parts of France, where there's certain cities where there's no one but Cathars. That there's no other form of Christianity in certain areas besides Catharism, Albigensianism. So we really don't know what happened because it's only when it, they come onto the radar screen of the official institution of the church that we first get a glimpse of them. We don't even know where they come from, how it developed, etc. We just know some of their views from the court cases where the Inquisition would have people accused of being Cathars brought in, would ask them questions, and would ask more questions, and would ask more questions, and there would be minutes taken of the, the court case, and then those minutes of the court cases become our evidence for what the Cathars believe. There's some evidence of two different forms of dualism here. So dualism is what's common to the Cathars and to these other ones we've talked about. The Cathars believe that the material realm around us is not created by the God they're worshiping. So they share that in common with the Gnostics and the Manichees. In other words, the God who created the material realm is not the God we should worship. The God we should worship is the perfect spiritual God who has nothing to do with bad material things. He wants to save us from this hell on earth in the Cathar worldview. You don't need a hell in Catharism. 
because you're already living in it. Same goes for Gnosticism, and same goes for Manichees. You don't need a hell because you're already living in it. You couldn't get much more hell than the bad material realm in the mindset of the people who belong to these groups. But there are two different variations on the dualism. So the Cathars all believe that the world around us is created by uh, a, an evil being. And that there is a perfect God who has, is associated with Christ. Who wants to save us from the evil being who, who created the bad material realm. Wants to save the, the element within us that isn't part of the material realm. But there's two different views of it. The moderate Cathars believe that the God who created this realm, in other words, sometimes they call him Satan, sometimes they use that term, or the devil, was a rebel against God. So they had the more common to what we've studied view of Satan, namely that Satan was not created evil, but rather rebelled against God, and in the rebellion created the bad material realm. So those would be, you could call the moderate Cathars. The radical Cathars think a little bit more like Zoroastrianism, where there, were, there was two principles from the beginning. An evil principle, call him Satan if you want, and a good principle, God. And that this was this way from the very beginning. So both of the views of the Cathars are dualistic. One's a moderate dualism that has the idea of Rebellion against God, therefore creating the dualism of evil and good, of material realm and spiritual realm. The other has it that from the beginning there was good spiritual realm, evil material realm, with gods over each of those two realms from the very beginning. There was no creation of those two figures, right? <clears throat> they were there from the very beginning. Scholars have detected in the material those two different strands of Catharism. Let me say a few other things about the Cathars, uh, now that you have that idea of the two uh, dualism as the prominent thing, and the two opposing powers at war with one another, good and evil, constantly affecting how a Cathar would express what rituals you should engage in, how you should worship God, how you should ward off the power of evil in your everyday life. Most other Christians, just to remind you, believe that the world we live in was created by God, not by Satan, not by an evil force, right? So, let me say something else about them. The Cathars uh, believe themselves, and this is where their name comes from, that they lived in a pure way. Their name comes from purity. This was their emphasis. To live the proper Christian life, they would say, you need to live a pure life. And a pure life in, involves living a life that refrains from as many material things as possible. Because we live in an evil world, dominated by an evil power, Satan. Satan actually created this world. There are sparks of something else trapped in this world, within us. But we need to abstain as much as possible from this bad world that Satan created. So you abstain from things like reproduction of the material realm. You don't want to have sex because you don't want to reproduce more bad stuff. You don't want to eat meat and you don't want to eat eggs because eggs are representative of reproducing the material realm. 
they also had the idea of two different types of believers. There's two different types of people that could belong to a Cathar church. And this is similar to the Manichees and to the Gnostics too, just by the way. Not the exact same categories, but the idea of two different camps. That there's the believers, the average Cathar Christians, and that there's the elite, the perfect ones, as they were called in some of the literature that we have surviving to us. So the simple believers and the pure elite are the perfect ones. The pure elite are the ones who preach to others and have special gatherings of the alternative church. So they're like the bishops. They also had critique of the traditional church. They critiqued the other forms of Catholic Christianity and felt that they were not living the demands of the pure life. They were not living purely enough. Namely, not recognizing that the material realm we're living in is actually created by Satan, not by God, and that we need to refrain from it as much as we can and escape from it. Some of the other consequent diverging beliefs that are worth noting to you so that you have a little bit more of a, a gist of what these guys are about. You guys are familiar with Christianity generally and its creeds to some degree, maybe from some course you've taken. What is the standard orthodox, once it's formed, a Catholic view of Jesus. What is Jesus? A human and God. So that's sort of the standard Orthodox view. By the time you get to the 1100s, that's already doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. The thing about the Cathars that's also true of the Manichees and of the Gnostics is that their understanding of Jesus is he was never human. Or better put, that Christ was never human. He only appeared to be human. We have scholars have developed a term for this because we have that idea witnessed as early as, maybe as early as 90 CE, but definitely as early as 110 CE. We have this view that some Christians believed, and that the Cathars later hold, in the 1100s, that scholars call docetism. The Greek word dakeo means to seem, to appear to be. So docetism is the word that scholars use to describe Christians who believe that Jesus only appeared to be, or only seemed to be human, but what that really means is he never really was human. Right? That's the force of what's being said. He seemed to be human, but he wasn't. So this idea of docetism we have as early as 110 CE in some forms of Christianity, and maybe even earlier. And it continues in some forms of Christianity from 110 all the way up to the time we're looking at here with the Cathars. So that's a major difference from other forms of Christianity in the Middle Ages. The mainline teaching of the church is that Jesus is both human and God. So there's why they get into trouble to some degree, right? Is that Christ was never truly human in their view. Therefore, there's no such thing as a physical resurrection. If Christ was never truly human, the body of Christ wasn't raised from the dead because, you know, he never truly was human. And on top of that, then you'd have consequences for what your view of the rest of Christians are, because the traditional view is Christ was raised from the dead, the body of Christ was raised from the dead, which was the first of a whole lot of other bodies that are going to be raised from the dead, judgment, which is kind of the form, forms the basis of the whole idea of judgment in the end times, right? Their be different belief has an impact on all of that. They don't think of that. They're not looking forward to the resurrection, to be judged. Not only that, but they don't have a purgatory, which medieval Christianity has, a waiting place after you're dead to figure out where you end up going. 
and they don't have a hell. Because we've already explained why they don't have a hell. We're already living in hell. We're trying to escape from hell right now. The thoroughgoing dualism they have, where the material realm around us is created by an evil being, has a whole domino effect on all kinds of beliefs, doesn't it? One of the few things we know about these guys, beyond what I've said so far, they're interested in pure life and in refraining from sexual activity and other things like that, is that they had one ritual we know about. It's called the consoling ritual. Instead of baptism and instead of the Eucharist, which were standard, what they called sacraments in the Middle Ages, rituals of the church that were supposed to, to bring grace to humanity from God. So that idea of the medieval idea of sacraments. They didn't have the sacraments of the church. Instead, they had the consoling, which was a laying on of hands. Let me read you a couple passages from writings that claim to be describing the Cathars' beliefs. We never have them their own writings. This is the thing about most heresies. We don't have Cathars writing down what they think. We have people having a court case and, and the minutes being taken and therefore indirectly having what some Cathars say. And we have people writing guidebooks on how to uh, judge Cathars if they come before you. So this is from one of those Inquisition books, a guidebook on the Inquisitions that describes what they call the New Manichaeans. They actually called them that. They called them Cathars the New Manichaeans. They knew about the Manichaeans especially through Augustine's writings. Here's what one of these judges writes down in order to give guidance to others. The sect, the heresy, and the devoted supporters of the Manichaeans, just simply calls them that, recognize and confess two gods or two lords namely a benevolent God and a wicked God. They assert the creation of all visible and material things to be, not the work of God, the Heavenly Father, as they call the good God, but the work of the devil and of Satan, of the evil God. For they call him the malevolent God, God of this era and prince of this world. They posit then two creators, God and the devil, and two creations, one, that is, of invisible and immaterial things, spiritual realm, the other of things visible and material. Likewise, they invent two churches, one benevolent, which they declare to be their sect, the same they assert to be the Church of Jesus Christ, the other, the malevolent, bad, which they declare to be the Roman Church. This they impudently call the mother of fornications, the great Babylon, whore and sanctuary of the devil, synagogue of Satan. So he's claiming they use some of the biblical passages that you guys are familiar with to demonize the Roman Church. So here we're seeing it happen from the other side. We're gonna, it's going to be a bit obvious that the Roman Catholic Church and the Inquisitions demonize heresies. It seems that movements like the Cathars similarly demonize other Christians, demonize the Roman Church. But here, using language from John's Apocalypse to do so. 